This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... A mystery cult campaign. An ice cream mystery. 1979 and barely 1980... Science Fiction Cinema Essentials. And Conspiracists versus the 15-Minute City. Hey, Ken. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos... And the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But Robin, I don't, I don't think that was Peter Frampton. I think that might have been Ophis or perhaps Hermocrates. And instead of delicious Mountain Dew to wash those Doritos down with, we have ergotized wine because beloved Patreon backer Ian Carlson asks, how might one build a gumshoe adventure or campaign around the players becoming initiates in a mystery cult? What tools might you use to tilt the action forward, luring players down the path of initiation? Cool names and magic powers seem the obvious choice here, but are there other hooks I might be missing? Is it even advisable to try to come up with core clues to a religious ordeal or Gnostic mystery, or would it be best to tie the adventure to a mundane mystery like a murder and use the cult as a power structure or backdrop. Quite a question, quite a recondite game premise, which I guess makes it exactly our business. <laughs> exactly our remit. Right. We, we do the recondite every week here on this show. Exactly. So I think one of the subtexts of these interwoven questions, interwoven like a mystery that you have to peel back layer by layer as you become more deeply enmeshed in it, is the question, how to make players like this? How to make them want to do this? How to, how to have them desire to engage? And I think the way to do that, first of all, is to cheat and to <laughs> tell them that that's the premise. Right. And say, okay, this is a campaign in which you are going to create characters who are initiated into a mystery cult. And the action of the campaign will be devoted to that. And at the end, when you achieve gnosis or initiation... That's the big thing. And mm -hmm. so the question is not, where is it going at all? But rather, what is the journey like? And what exact outcome do you have? 
And I think absent that, you're going to have uh, about half the players go, I don't want to join a mystery cult. I'll hang out over here. And the other half go, mystery cult? Oh, boy. So make it the premise and ensure that everyone wishes to accept that premise. Yeah, the um, you can divide this into two batches. Batch one would be, as you say, the overt premise is we are Mysteriarchs, initiates. We're trying to get into the mystery cult. We're trying to rise through its ranks, whether it be the Mithraic cult in late antiquity or cult of Eleusis at the beginning of the classical period. Whichever it is, we've got a mystery cult through the whole stretch there. And in uh, some games, in my sort of conception of Hellenistica, being a mystery initiate is going to be a thing that would be like a feat, right? So at, at one level, if you wanted to pick a, a first level feat, you would be postulant to a mystery cult. And then the next one, you'd be an initiate. And then at some point, you'd be an initiate. And that would be like seventh level or whatever it is. And that would give you, as Ian suggests, magic powers. And it would also give you social connections with other members of the cult, because that's what the sort of overt purpose of these cults are is basically a Freemasonry sort of a thing where if you're a Mithrist in a strange city, but you can go to the Mithrim, you can knock on the door with the Mithraic knock and someone will answer and you'll have a buddy. You'll have someone who will put you up or, you know, get you a good deal on salt or whatever it is you came to town for. And that's the sort of overt purpose of a mystery hold. And then the esoteric purpose is the one that gives you magic powers or insight into the gods or whatever else it is. And I guess the other half of that, besides the straightforward approach that you recommend wisely, is that you have set up a short campaign or a long adventure such that the perils the players undergo, the player characters undergo, are the perils, the ordeals that match initiation into a mystery cult. And I'm thinking of something like uh, John Fowle's novel, The Magus, which is about being initiated into a way of seeing. I think a lot of reality horror could be played that way. You could certainly do a a mystery cult vibe with uh, one of the settings in Yellow King, for example, or you could have the drawing you into the mystery being part of any sort of occult adventure game. And then at the end, once they've achieved their, their gnosis or their understanding, then the point is, now that you have this, do you keep going, knowing that you are behind the curtain and, and one of the power players in the mystical world? Or do we just stop there because it was actually the journey that was the fun part? Right. Although journeys are the fun part, I think for a lot of players, they're going to want a less diffuse goal to head toward. Mm. And so during my hypothetical sessions, they're always saying, hey, great characters who want to join a mystery cult. The next question is, decide among yourselves why collectively you want to do this. What is it? What is, and not just a vague goal like social connections, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to corner the silk market or get the power to crush the silver demons, or we wish to get our desired prince on the throne or, or whatever it is so that there is a another practical goal that is layered onto the mystical journey. And so that gives you a double structure where you have to overcome certain obstacles in order to win access to the next layer of initiation. But also you've got practical stuff going on in the real world where you have reasons to have sword fights or to steal barrels of wine or whatever it else that you're doing so that you have a concrete adventure level to play off the mystical inner layer. And that I think 
A, will appeal more to half of the group, at mm-hmm. least, yeah. and also give you a structure, and that will allow the players to sort of tell you without telling you exactly what ending it is that they want. So the ending is not just that they're all sitting around lounging on a carpet going, yep, gnosis, this is quite a thing. Our inner eyes are all over. Or like at the end of Highlander, just lying on the on the grass saying, now I can talk to plants. This was surely worth murdering all my friends. (laughs) But instead, it's like, you know, and then you elevate the prince or destroy the silver demons and and so forth. The other question that I immediately came to mind when uh, Ian posed this question is, what era to set it in? Because not only, as you suggest, are there a couple of different classical eras, but you could also do a neo-mystery cult as well. And so that puts us in mind, as, as you kind of alluded to, to the Victorian slash Belle Epoque era, where you can have like a Golden Dawn group or the equivalents among the French occultists of the time who were very explicitly designing their cults immediately based on masonry. But as you suggest, masonry is just mystery cults in different clothing. You could, of course, do a contemporary version, which I think would be fun. I would be tempted to do a sort of 1930s version in the Midwest, inspired by the Charles Portis novel Masters of Atlantis, where you're like small town members of uh, like the Rotary Club or whatever, you know, sort of soft Masonic group you're joining and you're, you know, one of you runs a feed store and the other is a car dealer and so forth. But Really, you're all part of this sort of mystical awakening of the 20s and 30s, and you discover that all of these corny Freemason rituals that you initially think are just sort of goofing around have a reality to them. And that could be done in the adventure structure that I just described, or uh, would be, I think, just as fun to do uh, as like a drama system game where, you know, you and your spouses start to realize that your little bucolic small city that you live in in the Midwest is suddenly being altered in a way that suggests that the uh, mysteries are being called down. Yeah, you could certainly do that as a drama system game. I feel like the drama system sort of points against the sort of strength of the mystery cult is that when you're all in the mystery cult, you're all in something together, whereas a drama system almost invites some degree of interplayer rivalry to at at the very least dominate the mystery cult, if not, you know, some other sort of a thing. I think a drama system where you are facing some outside force is a little trickier to pull off. And, you know, I'm not saying it can't be done. Obviously I wrote Moscow station sort of on that very basis, but I would say it can be done and you can also do it in a sort of a light hearted way. So that the stakes are low. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, someone sleeping with someone's wife. It's more about you're going to recognize that I'm the better chess player type thing. Yeah. Yeah. The notion of the mystery cult as the story structure that opens you into the Wainscott world, I think could be great fun. You could run that as a Miskatonic university where you've pledged a kind of uh, not a frat, but like one of the uh, eating societies like they have at Princeton or the societies that they have at Yale, Skull and Bones, whatever the Miskatonic version of that is. And you discover, oh, these are the these are the very few students at Miskatonic who are sort of aware of what's going on. And they bring you through that to sort of create the next generation of of uh, investigators, of, of uh, anti-mythos fighters. And that's why they're sort of patronized by Henry Armitage and he sort of gives them library facilities to use. And it's because he recognizes that with 
mythos investigation the way it is, you need a, a intake valve to bring in new students who are going to be aware of this. And so while it may seem like, oh, no, they're a dark and horrible mystery cult, at the end, it's like, oh, no, it turns out you are being vetted for battling uh, Nyarlathotep or the Migo or something. But there could also, of course, be a bad society, the Skull and Bones of Miskatonic, to say that over again, but, but the Manuscript Society or Key and Lodge or whatever is actually the ones that are they were the first attempt at a counter mythos cult, but they fell to near Lathotep. And so their mysteries are bad mysteries. And so it's a dueling mystery cult story in which the faster you advance, the more dangerous, but the better prepared you are to deal with the, the seniors who have faced near Lathotep and come back the other side. Right. Right. It also seems for me in this question that he's looking for ways for the different steps of initiation to be things that you have to investigate and learn about. And for that, I think you would have to suggest that you are uncovering the rituals of a, a lost lodge that, you know, it existed at one time, but oh gosh, the, not just the sort of obvious quest MacGuffinry of while well, the, the implements are gone, you got to go find the wand and the crown before we can do, you know, the third initiation. But also it's like, sorry, when, you know, Keith quit and went to Des Moines, he mysteriously burned the last three books with the rituals in them. And we're going to go back and find that uh, guy with a French accent and uh, get him to, you know, tell us where to find more copies of the books or help us reconstruct them. And so that the, so that there's knowledge that you have to gain in order to then reach the next level of initiation. It's not just that you complete an unrelated adventure and then the gem briefly describes you undergoing another of the sort of ritual movements that they're, you'd want to intertwine them. Yeah. And you'd want the, the actual, initiation progress to be a, a role, not just a, oh, you've accumulated enough experience points. Now you're third grade Mithraist. Good for you. You're the Corvus. You, you'd want to go through a, a challenge or an ordeal, or at the very least make a, a stability role to withstand the, you know, um, uh, inrushing, you know, specters or whatever, so that you feel like you've actually accomplished something to bump you up as opposed to it just being, you know, the same as being a third level cleric. Right. And so... I mentioned a whole bunch of different historical eras. Which one would you pick, Ken, as someone who likes to pick historical eras and put them on Earth? I think a lot of it would depend on what kind of flavor of outside adventure I was looking for. I would be very tempted, for example, by a 20s or 30s, either your Midwestern ideal, you know, oh, we actually live in a John Belair's novel, but we're adults instead of kids. That would be great fun. And I'm also, maybe it's because I've just re-re-re-re-read Tam Lin, but I, I still love the notion of college as an initiation. Elizabeth Hand, of course, does it in Waking the Moon. It's a great structure, and I think a Miskatonic University campaign would be great fun to do. Again, setting it either in the 20s or the 30s in the great era. And, and as you suggest, one of the things you have to do is find out what the old rituals were because the guy who completed them last went crazy and burned them all and himself on the quads. And that was a big thing. Right. Right. And I guess I did leave out an important choice, which is the actual era of the Illuminati. Right. Yeah. Right. Late enlightenment, right before or during the French revolution. That's great. If you want to have a lot of sword fights and periwigs. And of course you have Robert Anton Wilson's great mass of the Illuminati novels to um, uh, create maybe an overstatement. Great fun. Mass of the Illuminati novels to mine for background and uh, fun details. Right. So this started out as a recondite idea, but now that we've talked about it, I'm sure everyone will drop the games that are running and one, one of these uh, possible six 
mystery initiation ones. But we on this podcast know that there's always another mystery. And the next mystery is what lies on the other side of this here commercial. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It's time once more to head into the grocery store or into a restaurant, or perhaps down the street where there's a bunch of shipping containers that have been converted into little takeout stalls, because there's more than one food hut in the world. There's many food huts, and what better hut to enter than a food hut? And this time around, I thought we would talk about an article that's definitely making the rounds. I think everyone has had this tweeted to them by somebody on their on their social medias. And this is the article by David Merritt Johns from the May 2023 Atlantic that suggests that to their horror, nutrition scientists have discovered and partially tried to suppress the fact that ice cream might be good for you. And this will open up a whole other realm of food mystery. But Ken, maybe you want to kick us off by talking about the latest instance of someone rediscovering this dark secret of the nutritional world. Yeah, so there was a graduate student named Andres Artisan Korat, who was doing a study, Harvard uh, maintains a gigantic database of food intake surveys. They have a lot of, you know, uh, data, longitudinal stuff. Corad is basically running a study to determine dairy intake versus diabetes. And the question being, if you drink more milk, is that good for you? And when he did his 2018 study, he came up with a very strong result that indicated that Dairy is kind of six of one half dozen of the other. Skim milk is actually bad for you. And that yogurt is good, but ice cream is the best. That if you eat half a cup of ice cream a day, you have only 73% of the chance of diabetes too. I think actually Corat showed a slightly different number, but it replicates the result from the 2002 study by Mark A. Pereira that demonstrated that, as I say, back in 2002. And then the fun part of that is when Mark A. Pereira did that study, Harvard, uh, I think he did it at a different university, Harvard said, let's rerun this with our numbers. In 2005, they replicated the ice cream effect. Then in 2014, a Harvard study replicated the effect. And then a 2016 Harvard Tilburg University in the Netherlands replicated the effect. So it's very difficult to get effects to replicate. It is very difficult (laughs) on anything, on any scientific experiment where replication is a thing. And, and this 
darn answer that people don't like because it'll make people want to eat more ice cream and not just eat more ice cream, but eat more than half a cup of ice cream a day because that's actually not a lot of ice cream if you think about it for a second. Well, if you're only eating it every day, then sure. But on the other hand, you save it up every three days, you can have a cup and a half of ice cream and that's actually a a good amount. the, The last time I had a half a cup of ice cream is like when the Haagen-Dazs was almost empty and yeah, right. I had to split the little skiff on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But of course, as in all of these results, there's always a huge fear of how people misinterpret the results and do what they want with them, uh, similar to different results over the years that have returned you know, positive benefits for drinking red wine. right? Or that eating chocolate. Or eating chocolate. And the continued replication of this sort of reminds me of something that's gone on for even longer, which is nutrition scientists certain that there must be something terrible about coffee, that it must be bad for you because it excites you, it gets your metabolism up, and it's pleasurable. And decade after decade after decade, attempts to prove that coffee is bad for you have just proven that it's actually probably good for you. (laughs) And Ken, I think you uh, would raise some of the responses to this ice cream study to the shenanigan level. I would. For example, in the Atlantic... David Merritt Johns got the co-author of the 2014 study to basically admit to lying in the study conclusion. Darius Mizafarian, who gets, by the way, a ton of money from the diet industry and the fake food industry, but that's a different question. Certainly, you know, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. The sauce has no health effects. He says the conclusions weren't exactly accurately written saying no foods were associated when ice cream was associated. And this guy that's is... Some, that's some use of the passive voice there. Yeah, it was... Oh, who did that? I guess not me, the co-author. Yeah, so this guy has not been hung from a lamppost or fired. He runs Tufts Nutrition School. And the guy that uh, did the 2018 study is at Tufts. And guess what? He doesn't go on the record and comment that his boss is a big liar, which I guess makes sense. But it begins to get to the point of nutrition science being basically pseudoscience. It combines pseudoscience with scientism in a sort of a toxic, perfect storm, uh, and then adds onto that agenda-driven propaganda. As uh, someone, uh, a wag on the internet said, you can tell a pseudoscience because it never progresses. We don't have new, better astrology. We don't have new, better Reiki. We don't have new, better nutrition science. After don't eat poison and vitamins exist, Every single nutrient imaginable has peer-reviewed publications associating with any outcome. A 2011 review showed that of 52 research findings in nutrition, zero were replicable, and five pointed the other direction from the paper. Feeding studies by themselves, which are the vast majority of the data, are not data at all. They are anecdotes. Well, an actual feeding study does return useful information. A feeding study being one in which... All of your food that you, the test subject, are supplied with, you receive from the experimenter. Right. You have to either eat all of it or return the stuff that you didn't eat. And so those are actually the gold standard, but they hardly ever happen. Right. Because no one would put up with that. Right. Because (laughs) it's expensive. It's difficult. You can only do it for the short term. And it's unethical to do experiments on prisoners. (laughs) We're the only people who do it. And sorry, let let me just continue with the list of why these are a problem. And even when there's a volunteer, their compliance level drops over the course of the, the study. And as you were beginning to allude to, you can't actually do those studies on just the regular people in the demographic of the population 
who you actually want information on because they won't do it. You can't get like a busy mom to, you know, only eat what she supplied. So you don't have information on them. So the question is, who does these experiments? And the answer is not the population, but college dudes looking for beer money and weird loners, again, who need money. Yes. And again, even they are, you know, probably sneaking out and having a hot dog. Two thirds of the responses, the more standard way, which is where you take a survey or you write down in your food diary, two thirds of the responses to the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, this is the gold standard survey used by the USDA and the FDA, are incompatible with life. The, the diaries don't add up to I ate enough to live. A 2016 study demonstrated that about every other database, including the Harvard databases. As you mentioned, feeding studies are great, but they're impossible. And Every other study is confounded by a billion variables, and any statistician will tell you the more confounders you have, the worse the statistics. Right. So, so, so let's list some of the variables. Let's list some variables. So food itself is full of variables. For example, there are many different kinds of ice cream to bring it back to ice creams. Of which, which one do you pick? Is only butter brickle good for diabetes? We don't know. So there's issues around the preparation of food, even if it's a fresh food, how you cook it matters, and that's going to vary in ways that you can't detect between person and person unless the whole meal is being provided in a very authoritarian feeding study. The seasonality of fresh food has a big difference, even like a couple of months difference for very seasonable crops. can Their nutrition value can be quite different. Where you grow them, a nice, safe bunch of strawberries growing in uh, one pristine area might have a quite different effect than one growing near a highway, for example. Mm -hmm. And the additives in processed and restaurant meals are alone enough of a factor to put a big question mark on yeah. on any sort of even, even even a feeding study. And virtually every study about red meat, for example, classifies a perfectly fine grass-fed steak with a McDonald's hamburger, except that one is obviously highly processed and the other is not highly processed. So you don't know anything about red meat because no one's ever studied anything with a category that makes sense. And I imagine if, if it's a feeding study, which again are super rare, you're not using Wagyu beef for that. No, you are not. You are using whatever the budget can afford. And it turns out that's terrible. Another big variable that we're only just discovering are people's individual gut biome, your microbiome of your intestine. And the notion that you're not feeding yourself, you're feeding your gut bacteria that then pass along the savings to you is a giant confounder because everyone's gut biome is different, just like every little ecological tide pool is different, except vastly more different because they can't flow over into someone else's gut biome. Right. We have 7 billion entirely variant ecosystems over and above the micro ecosystem. So you have 8 million different what they call paradoxes, which is what nutritional science calls a thing where nutritional science is wrong. So the Mediterranean paradox, the Maasai paradox, the Caribbean paradox, all these perfectly sustainable, perfectly healthy local cuisine traditions that, oh, yeah, you get bad health effects when you start eating processed cheese a lot. But you know, if you're just eating a thing that nutrition science would say, this will kill you. Well, no, it won't actually, because people have evolved to get along by milking reindeer or whatever it is, right? Right. And not only do the organisms, the many, many organisms that live inside us, we are arguably just a, a 
carrying case for gut bacteria. But the rest of our bodies, the parts of us that are actually us, have enormous variation from person to person between age, metabolism level, the amount of exercise you do, which is especially confounded because it's probably not the amount of exercise you report that you do. <laughs> right. Even, you know, what season of the, the year it is can have quite different results. So the, the sort of the two biggest cases of what were nutritional science triumphs that were enshrined in law and regulation in America, the anti-cholesterol and anti-saturated fat campaign that began in 1977 and the salt campaign, Again, 1977 giant USDA salt restrictions. Both of those are based on faked studies. Ansel Keys in 1950s and 1960s did a lot of very shady studies to demonstrate that cholesterol was bad for you and that saturated fats were the worst kind of fats. First of all, the result did not actually bear that out. Cholesterol dropped after the government uh, changed the rules, took the trans fats out of things. But it turns out obesity skyrocketed. Now, part of that is the government redefined obesity in 1990. But the other part of that is it turns out other stuff was going on. A Cochrane meta-analysis in 2001 showed no relation between fat intake and mortality. And as I mentioned, Ansel Keys is at the best imaginable thing, a terrible scientist and more probably a fraudster, just like Lewis Dahl, whose 1972 salt study had to dose rats with 500 times the normal sodium intake to get a measurable result. Again, Cochrane has studied in 2003, 2004, 2010, no relationship to heart disease, while studies in 2006 and 2011 Again, based on the Cochrane data or metadata, technically found an increased risk of heart disease from low sodium diets. So individual people, as we mentioned above, have individual results. If you have a very, very strong genetic predisposition to hypertension, salt's probably not the best thing in the world for you. But if you're anywhere in the big lumpy bell curve of normal distribution, Salt is fine and, in fact, obviously necessary for life, as we learned from Star Trek. Right. So it's very annoying to discover that everything is just a giant question mark beyond moderation. Yeah. <laughs> Pay some attention to what you eat. Yep. Obsessing over what you eat is probably not great. Vary your diet. Try to eat fresh. Get some yeah. walks in and get your, you know, vitamins enough to not give you beriberi. <laughs> yeah. Like eight cups of ice cream a day. Probably bad. A half a cup of ice cream a day as, as an otherwise, you know, healthy, balanced diet may be fine or good. We don't know. There's too many confounding factors. Exactly. Another example is the recent study uh, released that scared a lot of people who are social drinkers, where the message was no amount of alcohol is ever safe. And while it turns out that when you dive into that, that the basis of that is, you know, a percent changes from very small odds of something happened to a slightly different odd. But if you express that as a percentage, it's, it's terrifying. And, and in fact, that's another thing that, you know, heavy drinking, bad for you, uh, extremely moderate drinking. Don't listen to the study that is attached to the abstinence organization. Right. There was a, a recent attempt to panic people over eggs again. And again, that had a million confounding variables. It was done based on self-reporting, so on garbage data. And it also had a very small actual effect once you screened out the noise and uh, left out the special pleading by the uh, nutritionist in charge. And I don't want to tar the entire field with the brush, but they're all astrologers, Robin. And many astrologers, if given a Tufts University grant 
would yell just as hard that astrology is so real, and they would maybe even fake data about who was born under which cusp of Neptune if it meant that their grants kept coming. So annoyingly, I guess we're going to have to continue to just sort of take it easy and and be moderate and exercise common sense and to uh, look with some skepticism at the latest uh, report, the latest scare headlines. Speaking of scares, I think we got a pretty big scare waiting for us at the beginning of the next segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Give this podcast a delicious scoop of support by joining such Patreon backers as Ariel Celeste, Jeffrey Pittman, Linda and Mike Schiffer, Peter Nix, and Philip Masters. We're walking up the increasingly brightly colored carpet. We're smelling the popcorn. We're moving across whatever that is on the floor to the center seats, the center aisle of the cinema hut to settle in to the science fiction cinema essentials series. And in this series, Robin, if we're very good, we're going to get into the 1980s today. But what are the odds of that? Yeah, when we're beginning the golden age of science fiction, the right. golden age of science fiction cinema turns out to be the late 70s and early 80s because there's just a bang, 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 bang. Funny, if you have Star Wars and Close Encounters next to each other, and they do incredibly well, a whole bunch of other science fiction films get greenlit, and a bunch of them are good. Yes, uh, it turns out that we are in a uh, chicken-and-the-egg situation. Was it the new wave uh, that produced the film ecosystem that would allow science fiction films of genius to thrive, or was it just oceans of money and the big numbers effect? And before we proceed, there is a bit of business arising from the minutes of the last meeting. We talked too long about Star Wars, but there was one thing I wanted to get into because people are concerned about it, which is the question of, wait a minute, isn't Star Wars actually fantasy? Is it really not science fiction at all? Oh my God. This <laughs> line of argument was articulated at the time Star Wars came out by the science fiction writers, uh, Spider Robinson, who said, no, it's just a fairy tale. It's not science fiction. But as we have discovered time and again in this series, that science fiction literature plus cinema equals mysticism. That if you start striking out all of the films that have 
mystical or fairy tale elements, uh, we've got maybe two actual full science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a little more than two, but definitely from the point of view of the film genre science fiction, Star Wars is absolutely not only a science fiction film, but dead in the center of film practice. And I would also, I would also argue that once you start saying this is fantasy, well, faster than light is fantasy. So. There you go, kids. Thanks for playing. Star Wars contains such an accumulation of science fiction elements. I think what we even called them tropes way back in the prelude. Yeah, uh, trappings, even trappings. One could call it. It's got spaceships. It's got robots. It's got ray guns. It's got warriors against a hellish dystopia. It's got psionic powers. All of this stuff is of the meat of science fiction, even if the frame story is a fairy tale and the cosmogony, if you will, is sort of, uh, you know, California watered down Buddhism, which yes. Okay, fine. Guilty as charged, but the core nature of star Wars, the thing that the movie is about is pretty clearly robots and spaceships. And that is science fiction. I'm sorry. That's just the story. So moving away, from a fairy tale disguised as science fiction, let's go to a haunted house disguised as science fiction. Ken, we both agree this is a, a giant banger, and of course this is Alien by Ridley Scott from 1979. This, as we mentioned before, borrows some elements and general vibe from Maria Bava's Planet of the Vampires and introduces one of the iconic science fiction characters in Ripley, as played by Sigourney Weaver. It also references... Howard Hawks and Thing from Another World and also another five or six different Howard Hawks films in that it's about a group of working people who have a camaraderie in a dangerous field. But unfortunately, that camaraderie is disrupted by a a terrifying uh, alien being who's gone on to be the uh, center of a a franchise to this very day. Yeah, the story is from Dan O'Bannon, who's the scriptwriter. He was doing At the Mountains of Madness, and I think he has said as much. It's absolutely Lovecraft via H.R. Geiger for the creature design out of Planet of the Vampires. It is a beautiful mutt of a story, and it also has possibly the best cast in the history of science fiction movies. There is no weak link. Tom Skerritt, we already talked about the great Sigourney Weaver, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Yafit Koto. There's no bad part. I mean, part of it is the, 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 the it's sort of a chamber piece because there's only seven characters plus a cat, uh, but there's, everything is good. The, the writing is good. The characters are beautifully limbed. And then, We have been invested as the haunted house begins to haunt, as the alien begins to kill, and we unfold the universe at the same time that we unfold the terror in a beautiful example of how to do exposition and how to do scope. And then, of course, it's also, as we, I think, talked about in the horror cinema essentials, it's just a nail biter of a terrifying movie. It's just beautifully, you know, shot with the you know, jump scares and the uh, Val Luton lighting and timing and all the rest of that. And Ridley Scott then adding on to that his own sort of almost Renaissance beauty in terms of his eye at the camera, his ability to sort of see the possibilities in all those shots. Even the most terrifying ones are also, they have a sort of a gothic gorgeousness to them, which again, since I've argued over and over that science fiction, the visual spectacle of it is a big part of the film. Uh, the visual spectacle of Alien, although you miss it the first 
six or seven times because you're so terrified is also really, really good. Now, another film uh, from the same year with surprising parallels to Alien, uh, not in terms of the thrills it delivers. Oh, no, not terms in terms of those at all. Is Andrew Tarkovsky's Stalker from 1979. And this pits another group of beleaguered specialist workers against a horror, but this is the existential horror of a zone where reality is breaking down. Uh, so this, again, is Andrei Tarkovsky, so it is deliberately paced, as a <laughs> fan might say, or slow, as Ken is going to say, and indeed it is that, and uh, it's not the kind of film that, uh, once again, I think that you return to necessarily again and again, although I'm sure there are people who listen to this who do watch Docker over and over, but its mood, its conviction, its strangeness, its brownness, I think all add up to a masterpiece that you should check out if you want to be able to say that you know the genre. Yeah, people who love Stalker really love Stalker. Our mutual friend John Tynes, I think, is one of those people that watches Stalker over and over again, much like many other films in our essential series. It's based on a novel on a roadside picnic by the Strugatsky brothers. It is a film of ideas in a way that uh, the best science fiction is for a nine hour film, Robin, you know, <laughs> it's all there. It's yeah. all there. Asterisks. Check the actual running time on IMDb. Yeah, whatever. I don't regret having seen it. I just regret not having blocked out the whole weekend. I mean, I, I had stuff to do is, is all I'm saying, but yeah, stalker is, it's a movie that unlike Alphaville, I will, I will grudgingly assent to Alphaville. I still think is some sort of trickery pulled by Godard on me. <laughs> But Tarkovsky is what he is, and if you don't like it, too bad. He's an artist, and that's what happens. Our other 1979 film that feels like it was nine hours long sadly does not have the excuse of being made by Andrei Tarkovsky, and it was made by Robert Wise, who is a director I ordinarily have a bunch of time for, and we've mentioned previously. It's the Star Trek The Motion Picture, or as we called it, Star Trek The Motionless Picture, being a basically big redress of the episode The Changeling, except it took more than 44 minutes to do it. But it was visually stunning in many uh, respects, and it was nice to see the crew back together. And Robin, do you have nice things to say about Star Trek The Motion Picture? Well, uh, let us explain why we're talking about it. I would not class it as a masterpiece by any means. Or an essential even. <laughs> as you point out, it is too slow. Robert Wise also would have agreed with you. Mm -hmm. And after the initial test screenings, he pleaded with the studio to let him recut it, especially all of the long slow shots past the Enterprise, and they refused to let him do it. And so somebody at head office thought that people really wanted a lot of slow shots of the special effects. The reason that we're talking about it, though, is that it is historically very important as the first sort of legacy reboot and the first sort of conscious beginning of a franchise, of a thing that was already serialized and was meant to be serialized some more in the cinemas. We have had Quatermass before, but those are adaptations of existing TV serials. And this is a new episode of a TV show that is then being leveraged into being a movie franchise. It doesn't become a full-fledged movie franchise until there's a good one, which we'll get to <laughs> later. But I think we have to mention it because of those things in a way is even more about what blockbuster fantasy and science fiction movies became after that star wars as we'll get to has always kind of struggled to become a franchise because it's not clear whether it's a an iconic or a dramatic narrative but clearly this is another episode 
with your favorite characters who we're going to keep seeing again and again, and then they're going to repeat it with another bunch of characters. And so we have to mention that it's more like a Marvel movie than Star Wars is. <laughs> In every respect. I, I think with this next film, Nicholas Meyer, not to give away when Star Trek gets good, but Nicholas Meyer's direction of a 1979 film, Time After Time, I don't know that... I mean, I'll say it's an essential because it's such an absolute banger of a movie. I only could wish that it had affected science fiction cinema more than it did. But the story of Malcolm McDowell playing H.G. Wells traveling in a time machine from his novel, The Time Machine, forward in time to 1979 to hunt an escaping Jack the Ripper played by the king of all villainy, the late great David Warner, is... A absolute thrill. It is a joy. A, a grin is breaking out on my face, even as I describe it. And it's such a, if you can call a Jack the Ripper movie a feel-good fun ride, then this is. Again, and I a only... A lot of that lightness of tone comes from something that harks back to the earlier 70s, which is once more, this is sort of a late entry in the lampooning the vicissitudes and hedonism of the 70s movies. And so this is sort of the, I think on the list is our kind of last gasp of that. And and so there's a, a lot of fun being poked at the modern world through the eyes of the uh, somewhat stuffed shirt H.D. Wells. Yeah, the um, there is there is a certain sleeperosity to it. And again, Nicholas Meyer will borrow from this again in his script for Star Trek Four. when once more we have time travelers who are bemused and befuddled by our modern era. But uh, time after time, I think sort of, you know, did its piece. It did it amazingly well. It gave me great joy at the time, gives me great joy now. Works as a comedy, works as a romance, works as a thriller. It's just extremely well done and, you know, and grapples with the issue of being out of one's time and not just a uh, sort of a glib way, but had something to say about that. Yeah. In in many ways, it's actually a better time travel piece than the time machine. The novel is, but that's a different argument. (laughs) Moving on from time after time, we come to a movie that I've only seen once. And I think I was not tall enough to go on that ride when I saw it as a sophomore in high school, but we're talking about altered States, a Ken Russell masterpiece, one of his several from 1980 in which uh, William Hurt, plays a guy who attempts to unlock his, what what do we call it? His uh, animal nature? His, his inner atavistic throwback. So right. it's, yeah. it's about sensory deprivation and also uh, psychedelics. So this is a throwback to the, the Mad Scientist movie, that a weird experiment is made, uh, hurt experiments on himself to the dismay of his wife or partner, I forget which, uh, Blair Brown. Bob Balaban is around to look askance at the activities. And basically, he reawakens his uh, primordial junk DNA and starts to literally mutate and turn back into a, a, a primeval being. So there's a a real Lovecraft theme to what's going on there. And it sort of shows you where uh, science fiction is as a genre now. It's no longer the redheaded stepchild. It's not the embarrassing thing that, you know, you have Jack Arnold direct or whatever, but the top filmmakers and top auteurs and the British wild man, Ken Russell, uh, is definitely among those, are now able to seize on the commerciality of science fiction in order to get people into seats to enter into his anarchic, subversive vision. Yeah, it, it, like 2001 and Fantastic Voyage, it is based 
on a novel that was written as a follow-on for a screen treatment by Patty Chievsky. It's, but we said Ken Russell, so it's obviously a, a hallucinatory experience on many levels. I should probably see it again rather than continue to go off decades-old memories of it, but those decades-old memories are still there, which I think speaks well of Altered States. And I guess finally, since we're talking about franchises... It's the second movie in a series that makes a franchise, I guess, although we maybe should have some good ones after that. So this brings us to The Empire Strikes Back, directed by Irvin Kirshner from 1980. I guess I could have stuck all my Star Wars commentary into here, but I didn't think we'd necessarily get to this point. This, of course, is the uh, one in which a true visual stylist and someone who has experienced with mood took over from Lucas as director and... It introduces many of the iconic Star Wars characters and, you know, obviously Yoda as part of that. It is, however, a precursor of another thing in science fiction franchise movies, which is that structurally it's a mess. It's all over the map. It's all middle. It introduces the dire serialization of film in which it's acceptable to just end it with a cliffhanger. And then three years later, you've got another movie to go and see. So with that caveat though there is so much that is good and vivid and central to the culture let alone to the science fiction genre that i i still have to call it a masterpiece even though i needed to grump about the lack of a proper ending yeah that's i i think that's all legitimate everything you said is correct i think that what is kind of a miracle about the empire strikes back is that it suffers from the lack of an ending it suffers from being chapter two in a trilogy it suffers from Lucas kind of not knowing what he wanted the movie to do at any point. And it's the result of, I think, four different drafts of the screenplay, beginning with the great Lee Brackett through Lawrence Kasdan, of all people, who is, quite frankly, a coin flip. But the end result is absolutely, you know, and then maybe this is all down to Kirshner, but the degree of momentum, the degree of story progress, the the sense of a great energy, a great myth building is all in there. It's all native to the screen. It's it's something that you can get again by watching it, even as you know, to what a rack and ruin the franchise has, has crashed into. You can still be, I don't say elevated, but maybe I mean elevated by watching that great climactic turn where Luke and Darth Vader sort of change narrative places that, you know, sort of choreography alone over and above all the other terrific bits in empire makes it worth your attention. Frank Oz, of course, uh, I think we should say maybe the breakout star of empire by demonstrating that a live puppet Yoda can actually hold the screen in a science fiction epic and not look out of place, not look weird, not look strange. Admittedly, they cheated a little bit by having a Yoda costume that one of the uh, little people on set wore every now and again. But by and large, it is a technical triumph of a sort that you don't really hear about very much, which is multiple types of special effect all flowing together into an organic whole and into a believable storyline. So Right, because there were about five people in the world who could invest a puppet with that degree of emotion and performance. And the rest of them also were Jim Henson or worked with Jim Henson. Right, yeah. Jim Henson or his buddies. Yeah. Well, that uh, doesn't get us all the way through 1980, but it does get us to the end of this segment. So we'll be some more uh, time shenanigans when we resume next week. In Delta Green... 
cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to head into a corner into the worst corner on this podcast. And it's, you know, such an annoying uh, but essential and central to our uh, various theses topic that we have to at least give it a corner. And that, of course, is the conspiracy corner. And this time around, I want to look at how new things suddenly bubble up and get the attention of uh, what is now a sort of a globally interconnected group of conspiracy theorists looking for the next thing to crystallize their sense of panic and rebellion and sort of the weird paradox of feeling central in the universe by feeling persecuted. And very recently, a bunch of people have decided that the new thing to show up at, you know, town meetings and other community events and to be a crackpot about is the 15-minute city. This is another example of a fairly anodyne, specialized academic concept or theory being seized upon as the basis of conspiratorial ideation. And so I thought, can you, as the expert on conspiracy theories, would help us with the sort of anatomy of how this became the latest thing for people to be freaked out about? Okay. Before we talk about the epidemiology or the etiology, I guess a brief note on the 15-minute city. Of what it actually is supposed to be. What it actually is. The 15-minute city concept is that everyone should live 15 minutes from everything they need for their life to be good. So right. Or 15, that everything that you need for your life to be good should be within 20 minutes of you. Right, yeah. And, and so it should be, you know, you should be near a grocery store or several grocery stores. You should be near a bar or other gathering places, coffee houses. There should maybe be a theater within 15 minutes of you. You should have a park. You should have your school where your kids go within 15 minutes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Shock horror. Shock horror. This is how every city in the world was, with the possible exception of ancient Rome, down to the invention of the automobile. So, big news. We're attempting to undo the damage done by the last batch of global bureaucrats right. with a new decision. And not coincidentally, it's how both of our neighborhoods are. It's yeah, how, I mean, you and I both live, live in 15-minute cities, and I think we're both kind of smug about that, quite frankly. Right. I needed a cable to do the podcast today, and I was able to find it 15 minutes away in walking distance. I likewise could have done that by walking to the office desk spot in my neighborhood. That said, 
said, it gained its recent trendy gloss beginning in 2012 with a TED Talk from a architect and professor at MIT named Kent Larson. He proposed the 20-minute city. Well, 20 minutes is too long in this fast-paced modern era, so... It just doesn't have the same ring to it. So a Sorbonne professor and former M19 communist guerrilla, which is, I guess... It gets you into the Sorbonne, certainly, right. named Carlos Moreno, proposed a 15-minute city in 2016. The mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, picked that up for her re-election campaign in 2020, which is when it sort of blew up into global prominence when she made it this big linchpin of her campaign. And again, Paris, I hasten to point out, is mostly that already, certainly for the rich part of Paris. Uh, the Benlouz in the uh, outskirts, the suburbs, the ring cities, probably not, but the actual Paris part of Paris, mostly 15-minute city already. Right. So, so there's an argument, let's make these other parts as good as this part that's good. Well, I don't know if she made that argument, but she certainly said she was going to do it. So anyway, this has been burbling along in various urban planning centers and confines where the uh, good and the great meet in a rich part of town and nod and then do nothing. And in 2022, Oxford in uh, the UK, uh, the county council introduced mass traffic cameras to report drivers from outside Oxford and to enforce a low traffic neighborhood plan. Oxford, again, is already a 15 minute city. It's medieval. You can't get a car into it anyway, but never say that something can't be bungled and mishandled by a British county council because they did. They got a zillion complaints from people who were suddenly getting announcements and warnings. They didn't know where they could drive. And into that stew came people who were saying, this is just step one of locking you all in your houses, like China locking everyone in their houses during COVID. Right. So this is like the, the crossover event. Right. Just as viruses cross over from ferrets and bats into people, this idea crossed over from academic discussion and urban planning into uh, the fear and terror of uh, conspiracy theory. Right. And so at least 2,000 protesters gathered to yell at the Oxford traffic plan, blaming uh, the Great Reset, which is the insanely stupid title for a white paper released in June of 2020 of all dumb times to release it by the World Economic Forum, better known as Those Jerks at Davos. Right. So th this is where I need to provide uh, an ad for my new consulting service. <laughs> right. So I'm setting up a consulting shop and it has one purpose and one purpose only, which is to tell you not to name your thing something sinister or, or ominous. Right. So if you have a new, you know, AI text thing to assist lawyers, don't call it Spellbook. Right. And yeah. if you uh, have your latest report from Davos, you should know you're already the focus of this sort of conspiratorial thinking. Don't call it the Great Reset. There's all sorts of other more boring things that you could say to express the same report that none of you are going to read and no one cares about. Right. The actual Great Reset is basically corporatist bourgeois greenwashed by ESG homilies. And explain what ESG is. ESG, environmental social governance. It's the way that certain investment companies will upgrade or downgrade a stock for buying based on their theoretical, almost entirely theoretical, environmental, social, or governance impact. So you give more money to a solar power company and less money to an oil well company or whatever it is, right? That that's basically the the standard. And if I'm right. using, and there's so much between the E, the S, and the G that that's right. everything and can mean whatever you want. Exactly. Yes, it's basically the um, uh, Aristotelian definition of tyranny, where 
you don't ever say what the law is, but everyone's already broken it. But the larger point being that it's also a way to funnel money to corporations and pretend you're doing good by doing so, which is, of course, what rich people who gather at Davos all wanted to do to begin with. So anyway, the Oxford City Council Planning Commission has approvingly cited Moreno for its 2040 plan of Oxford. But of course, the city council is not the county council, but that doesn't make a difference when you're some blogger in Canada yelling about Oxford for some reason. And it is certainly true that Barcelona restricts automobile traffic a great deal more than even many other 15-minute city plans do. And there was a manifesto for reorganization of the city of Barcelona that was signed by a bunch of scholars and academics and urban planners, people who wanted to get invited to Davos, I suspect. And it called for reorganization of mobility, which is to say ending car use, renaturalization of the city, which sounds good until you say, hey, whose who's house is being turned into a park? Decommodification of housing, which is great unless you own a house. And degrowth, which is just innately terrible. So one can argue that if you are, you know, signing on to this plan, you deserve at least one or two slaps around the internet. You probably don't deserve death threats. That's, you know, obviously no one ever deserves that nonsense. But it, there is a degree to which there is a, you know, you bought the ticket, now take the ride. Right. In my uh, and opinion. certainly there's a lack of grappling with how mm-hmm. popular having a car is. Yes. And being able to drive anywhere or you want. owning your house. And, or... and the autonomy that it gives you. And <laughs> yeah. although I think uh, many of the arguments for having fewer cars are very strong, I think the, the appeal of having a car and why people feel that way, and, and in particular why these sort of low trust figures who populate the conspiracy demographic are going to react to that. I guess it's something that, uh, well, they figured it out now. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is these protesters and the ecosystem around this, they conflate this sort of soft headed, trendy urban planning bourgeois with the, as I mentioned, the Chinese uh, totalitarian lockdown methods, because both were sold as anti-COVID measures, both involve social control, absolutely, but mostly because once you're mad, you are magnetized to the bigger mad. Right. And, and if you believe you already live in a dystopia, yeah. every new fact is dystopia. Or if you believe you see a dystopia coming, every new fact is something you scream about to prevent that from coming. And this is where the hardcore anti-vax, anti-Oxford uh, guys would sort of be ideological cousins to the global warming panickers because they see an apocalypse coming and they believe that everything that happens is drawing us to it. And there is, you know, the only thing we can do is scream about a power transmission line in Utah, which, of course, has, if anything, beneficial effects or a gas pipeline or whatever. So you see the same sort of magnetization happening, but in the same way that because the CIA was doing many, many palpably awful things right after the church committee report, every single left conspirator was magnetized to the CIA. And one can sort of take a little sidebar to say RFK Jr. running as the anti-vax candidate for the Democratic nomination, perhaps the clearest example of this sort of you know, hands across the aisles moment in conspiratorial thinking. Right. Because conspiracy theorists tend to wind up agreeing more with each other than they do with the right. uh, conventional part of, of either spectrum. Because they have a similarly Manichaean worldview. And once you, once the conspiracy is big enough, it incorporates everyone's enemies. Right. So certainly there is someone out there, and I would not have to look far, who blames 
both the CIA and Pfizer for everything that's going wrong. And, you know, back in the day, that would have been, you know, an unbreakable divide. But now everyone's coming together in a beautiful, if crazy, kumbaya. Right. It, it is nice to see the, the disdain that RFK Jr. gets from the Democratic establishment. Right? Yeah, they're, but, not, they're not trying to co-opt him and go, hey, maybe we should get some of this anti-vax action. Right. It, is, it has been nice to see disdain for RFK Jr. way back when he was anti-regular vaxes, even before he was anti this one. But that said, in, in the sort of giving the devil his due, none of the 15-minute city proponents suggest anything like vastly mitigating zoning and setback regulations or increasing housing construction or cutting small business and restaurant regulations and taxes to create all these businesses that you need within 15 minutes of your house. They also generally ignore crime entirely. And that is because they also are more about the social coding and not about the actual policy outcome, which is, again, is why my sympathy for them being yelled on, on the Internet is a little lower than it is for perfectly innocent people who get a death threat because they posted a picture of their daughter in the wrong t-shirt or whatever. Right. Well, I'm glad to see the Yimbies coming along and actually making that argument from the left that this development has to happen in order for (laughs) people to have places to live that they are within 15 minutes of other things with. The the rise of left Yimbyism is a a soft white pill, certainly, that eventually things get so terribly wrong that even Matt Iglesias has to agree with you, is I guess... Something of a joy in my declining years. Yeah, well, that's going to help uh, Matt Iglesias' cachet that you've endorsed him. <laughs> I don't say I've endorsed him. I'm saying he's agreeing with me. That's not the same thing at all. So, what conspiratorial uh, crazy antagonists in our scenarios are going... What are they going to be up to because of their fear of a 15-minute city? Are they going to be out uh, smashing CCTV cameras? Are they... Because, of course, the problem always in bringing conspiracy into the world of genre entertainment, whether it's gaming or or fiction, is that you don't want to... that They create all sorts of crazy science fictional, scary horror things that you want to take advantage of, but you don't want to validate that world by saying, yes, they they are trying to tyrannize you with these traffic congestion measures. I I guess this is sort of part of the, the whole question of conspiracy methods is that we've sort of settled, I think, between you and me on the right tactically but wrong strategically notion that they're right to be suspicious, but they're wrong about who they're suspicious of, that it's not actually the Oxford County Council, it's actually shadowy vampire billionaires or whatever. So your conspirators are going to be, as you say, smashing traffic cameras. They will possibly be just showing up at zoning briefings. I feel like these are the guys that generate you know, the file dump, this is the actual plan for the neighborhood. And then when you look at it, it's like, oh, this is a Gnostic parallelogram or whatever. And they were wrong about it being, you know, Klaus Schwab at Davos rubbing his hands and and, uh, dancing like a gnome. But they were right that there is something occult and bad going on and that the vampires or whoever are just using Klaus Schwab as a puppet. Right. And and that's the the conceit of the esoterrorists as well as as that Mm -hmm. anything that arouses fear and anxiety and uh, creates this sort of psychic energy that the esoterists then can then use to uh, bring demons into the world and uh, people out, you know, documenting the uh, traffic cameras in order to type about them on the internet are going to be the first ones who get eaten. Right. Surely an esoteric plan is to confuse the Oxford County Council and the Oxford City Council. Exactly. I feel like that's very esoteric. Yeah, that creates a lot of bureaucratic demons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, once the demons are making fine governmental distinctions like that, I think it's time for us to uh, run away from them while they're distracted. But we'll be back 
a mere week from today with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askvagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure this podcast remains within walking distance by joining such urbane backers as... Dave Stecco. Jacob Borsma. Matt Farr. Sam Rutzik. And Sean Hoyle. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin Merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.